0: It is a delight to be here today with Kyle McNeese and Nate Heil of Grail Country. And uh, we have decided to talk about two books, C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, which the most important thing about it is that's a hideous cover, <laughs> <laughs> and C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. <clears throat> and... Uh, Nate and Kyle are Nate and Kyle are meeting for the first time today, and our whole purpose of this is to um, talk about these two books, talk about the ideas in them. And I am not at the same level as these two guys are in terms of my education and my background. So, I, my interjections are going to be ma- mainly based on my experience of where I have seen this in real life. So. <clears throat> I'm gonna let you guys go ahead and and Kyle, you're the one who who imagined this conversation, so I'd like to know what you want to get out of it.
1: Well, I think first of all, I I would disagree with what you said because the the more you you sort of stare into this abyss, the the more you get out of it. I don't know that there's anyone who's a quote unquote expert. I started writing about these issues many years ago when uh, no one believed that. AI was an existential risk or that Kurzweil with respect to many of his predictions should be taken seriously. And so it just so happens that I was uh, taking uh, a CS Lewis class with a man who was writing a book on CS Lewis at the time. And so he wanted us to cover some of the works of Lewis's that were germane to technology. And so when we got to that hideous strength, I was also reading Kurzweil at the time. And so that gave me the idea for, for the paper that I wrote and shared with you all. Um, it was just, it was startling as I was reading these two things that no one had put together. People would say maybe Lewis was setting up a, a straw man so that he could easily knock it down. But what I did was actually compared passages between Lewis and, say, Kurzweil or other transhumanist philosophers like Nick Bostrom. And they were indistinguishable. If I'd remove the name, you wouldn't know who was saying what. Which one was the, the philosophy being promoted and which one uh, C.S. Lewis was sort of trying to get at and try to, like, oh, hi,
2: Luke. How are you hi, Luke. Hey, Lou.
1: Hey, hey.
0: Good to have you with us. kale yeah, might pop in too at some point. I, I sent him the link, but um since he has kind of been unavailable up to now, I'm not you know I'm not I'm not holding out any hope for that. So we're just getting started here and Kyle was talking about what he hoped to get out of the conversation. so Nate, how about you what what's your um niche oh, in-
2: actually so I've actually i I've uh when did I first read these books? Oh, it must have been probably 30 years ago, I think, when I first when I first read them. And uh, it's just as I've watched our world unfold in the direction it has, the like the salience of these books has just become like greater and greater because um, you can see the kinds of things that Lewis was worried about starting to to happen um and uh so I'm kind of my hopes it my hope is that we can take a look at what Lewis has written here and hopefully have some insight into our into our moment and how what that suggests about how we should handle it and how we should deal with it and how we should
3: approach it.
0: Okay, okay. and Luke, I know you wanted to be a part of this. So, what was your what was your hope?
3: So, um, sorry, I don't have my headphones fixed out it, figured out yet. So, if my audio is terrible, I'm sorry.
0: No, it sounds good.
3: Okay, um, I love the Lewis Space Trilogy. Like, I mean, I think.
0: Okay, I probably limiting, it up. They were limiting this to that hideous strength and the abolition of man. Yes. Yeah. OK.
3: Yes. Which which is totally great, Um, because I I've said for a long time, people will talk about the Space Trilogy or the Ransom Trilogy and people will talk about how great Perlaundra is. And it is. I mean, I love all of them. But that hideous I, I've said forever, people sleep on that hideous strength. Because I think it, what it does is it takes that whole world and cosmology and way of understanding reality and all the wealth that is there and then applies it to our world. And it's basically just been it's, it's like the modern world is a textbook <laughs> where the hideous strength is a textbook for the modern world. I mean, so. Um, so I'm yeah, I'm excited to talk about how it has so much overlap with at least the way I experience the world.
0: Well, I first read these two books. 42 years ago and at the time that I read them I could have told you that there were people in the education departments of the state government where I was involved in politics who were seemingly using these as textbooks (laughs) on how to control people Mm -hmm. Um, it was already well underway by 1981 (laughs) Well underway. So uh, when I hear people get all worked up now and all, you know, what's happening? I'm like, it's been happening forever. It's been happening forever. We just had our eyes shut to it, but um, things just pop out. Especially as I'm rereading *The Abolition of Man*, things just pop out. Now the thing about *Abolition of Man* that that um, is more of a, a book of criticism, philosophy, maybe to some extent. Um, trying to open people's eyes to what happens when you try to um, remove human sensibilities from, from our world and try to, to dumb everything down to a strictly materialist base that has no sense of values. What happens in that situation? um but apparently and this is something I you know I, I would have known it if I'd thought about it but it just became clear to me recently that that hideous strength was written as a way to illustrate abolition of man yeah so, I mean it's pretty it's, obvious now that I reread abolition of man it's like oh yeah because I reread hideous strength a uh, few months ago and um
2: yeah the introduction actually explicitly says so
0: well I you know, I don't I don't need introductions. <laughs> but you know, the here's the thing. I, I think what might happen to a lot of people when they start reading that hideous strength happened to me. When I first started reading it, I felt like I was walking through a fog. Like, what what is even happening here? Who are these people? It it was so outside, especially in 1981. I was a new believer, it was so outside my realm of understanding this kind of world that he was um, creating here. And because I read it without reading the first two of the trilogy, I was in kind of a fog. So was any of you have that experience or?
2: Well, he's the cosmology that Lewis is creating in these, through these, through these books. And which he kind of like that hideous strength is where he kind of brings everything into sharp, Sharper focus and you kind of know exactly what he's doing in terms of cosmology, but it's like it's a much more complex cosmology than I would say. But I would say that even the average Christian reader is prepared to to deal with, it's like it's a very layered. um, uh, Cosmological hierarchy that he's presenting
3: it's like all the lord of spirits stuff that everybody's so excited about like that's embedded in his whole in the whole narrative and i don't like so for me it wasn't because i read them in sequence and i read them because i had read the abolition of man and saw that note and i was just like oh i should check this out um because i was really taken by the abolition of man um Actually, this is, The a Demand was like my almost intellectual awakening in, in a sense. Like I I was reading that about the time my son was getting into schooling age. And uh, I started reading about education. And I mean, it's what got me into classical and all sorts of things. I mean, it was it was my introduction to Socrates and all that stuff. And so when I read That Hitty Strength, I was, it was really clicking. And it always made sense to me. I mean, I don't know if it's my Pentecostal background or whatever it is. It's just kind of. Like there are books about how everything is spiritual. My son gets mad at me all the time because I talk about how everything. I'm like, yeah, that's demonic. That's demonic. And he's like, everything isn't demonic, Dad. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> what do you think it is? Of course, it is. So. Well,
0: well but me, that's the so thing. Is like, for, but, for but for people who are unfamiliar with this, maybe somebody should explain but, what is meant by demonic here. <laughs> so well,
2: yeah, but, but, Lu, but right, but Lewis's cosmology is not. Is not he's not presenting a cosmology of it's just demonic no he's presenting a cosmology of like okay there are intelligences that are greater than human intelligences and some of them are some of them are good and some of them are evil and some of them are neutral
0: so
3: yeah. um, aliens it's... Who, you know who knows
0: well you know guys so i mean at the yeah. baseline- You don't need intelligences that are greater or lesser than human intelligences to pull this off. And you don't need AI. What, what Lewis is talking about in the abolition of man has been being practiced in the institutions, in the Academy for well over a hundred years, I'm sure. And, uh, And it was well underway in Iowa in 1980. And the way we see it come down to our children is it comes through the education departments at the universities. Because the guys in the ivory tower come up with this stuff and then they start implementing it. And the way that they implement it is get the people who who wanna be teachers, in order to be a teacher, you have to go through the education department And then the education department brainwashes you that you have to do this. This level of um, what you're really doing is removing real education and replacing it with all this. We're going to change your values stuff. Right. right? Well,
2: Lewis, as Lewis presents it in the novel, like this is the vision he sees is like so the ideas that end up allowing something like nice to come into existence, which is the acronym of the so you good know, organization in the book that like national
3: institute of coordinated sciences or experiments yeah, experiments.
2: Yeah. What yeah. like their ideas come out of, he's very clear that their ideas come out of the college, mm-hmm. right? and, you know, so it's the college's own ideas that are coming to, fr- to fruition. So he shows that exact link that, that we're seeing. The other thing that I thought was here's an interesting thing too that I was thinking about as I was I was you know I had I hadn't read the book in several years so I re-listened to it today the entire book, um, on double speed <laughs> just to refresh my memory classic and one of the things that um, one of the things that struck me is that there the, you can see a little bit of of the sort of the counter organization. Saint yeah uh, Saint Anne's that is you know fighting for, for Logris mm. versus Britain. Uh you can see how it kind of reflects TLC because it's like it's not all Christians, right? It's like you have you have like this like honest materialist mm. guy, oh, you man. have like a a, a a visionary who's actually not a believer, who's an agnostic, who just happens to have this capacity for visions who Gets and, brought into it, so this collection of people <laughs> that it's not just like the people that end up fighting for the, the good side aren't it's not just uh all the true believers, right? It's it that it's a much more uh diverse collection of people than that.
1: Yeah, and I actually, Karen, to your point, I actually thought whenever I read this, you know, if you if you take the abolition of man and you say. Lewis was always trying to find a way. How, how do I get this to be digestible for the everyday person, which is why he said he had to have it. He knew that's why he made Jane and Mark academics. He, he needed something that he could touch. He said he originally wanted to make Jane a biochemist, but he just didn't know enough about that. So he made her a literary scholar um, studying John Donne. So he wanted it to touch everyday people. And what I thought was, to your point about the education component, what he starts in the abolition of man for people that are, that are sort of removed from that, if you read that hideous string, one of the most powerful moments for me is the scene where Mark is being, he's being tortured in a sense. He's taken into this room and, and to me, the part that was the most sinister wasn't like the very grotesque image he was supposed to look at. It, were, it was those images that were just nudging him slight, like it was just off a bit. And the idea that that in order to maintain his sanity in this kind of environment, they, they wanted him to acquiesce to the lie. Because if you can acquiesce to the lie, then they can nudge you a little bit further. And I think that that's sort of the... The moment where where we're at currently, because what starts in the abolition of man, this notion of teach these kids from the little green book that it's all subjective, that that there is no objective morality, there is no Tao. There is no, no Rita, no natural philosophy no no moral system and if you can sort of lean on them and pull them in the direction of relativism at at what point does that student at what point does their sort of intellectual immune system kick in and as someone who spent almost my entire life in the academy i can tell you that 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 you're you're so right in saying if you want to get through there are certain things that that they want you to do that has nothing to do with academics itself it has nothing to do with the publishing of the paper but that's sort of the reason why they make you go through it it's to inculcate you into this club and of course not everyone is that way but as as you see in the novel lewis points out you don't need everyone to be that way you only need a a collection of people in the pursuit of power
2: right you know I, I as i was listening to that section that you were just talking about again where he's like where he's he's the objectivity training is what they call it right yeah yeah reeducation so, <laughs> yeah. yeah so so he brought in for the objectivity training i could not help but think as as the, these images are being described i'm like oh my gosh this sounds exactly like ai art so we're all being bombarded with the images that are they're precisely like the, the, that they're okay they're normal kind of sort of but they're just slightly off and what's interesting too is that what starts to pull what starts to like awaken Mark to what he's got himself into is that he just starts longing for the normal yeah right so at first it's not even a sen- it's no sense of the good or the noble or the true or anything but like just like how about the normal like he because he starts to realize that like everything that's being put before him is just like off.
0: It's so funny that you say that because what popped into my head was my, this memory. I lived in Japan for three years and, you know, Japan is really beautiful. Every garden is completely nurtured and cared for by people. And every tree is clipped and perfect. And even in the gigantic parks like golden gate park, every tree has been shaped and trimmed and every lawn manicured and every flower brought to its ultimate of beauty from a human perspective. And after three years, you're just screaming, let me see a natural scene, any place. I have Mm -hmm. to see trees that have been left to grow their own way and flowers that have been left to grow. I have to see some faded flowers on the vine. (laughs) It just about drove me crazy. And you don't realize, I mean, there, there just is a way that the world is supposed to be. And when we get in there and start tinkering with it around the edges all the time, we're damaging people's vision of of what the world is, you know. That's exactly right. The, the other thing, though, that, you know, you were saying, um, Kyle, about the hoops you have to jump through as an academic I don't know what it's like at the at the you know graduate and postgraduate level, but in Iowa for the the uh, K through twelve teachers back in nineteen seventy eight I think it was they passed a a regulation that was called uh, multicultural non sexist education. And every teacher who wanted to be certified to teach had to take the multicultural, non-sexist education class every year. And it was basically a class teaching values, clarification, situational ethics, um, teaching you how to um, contact your spirit guide, how to become a sponge and allow, allow the universe to enter into you so that you would be open to everything. That's 1978 and that that was I was elected in 1980 and I I headed up a committee on educational regulations and I thought that's one regulation I want to get rid of. And this is a bit of an exaggeration, but it felt like all the demons of hell came out against me and made sure that I wasn't able to touch it with a 10 foot pole because that was the that was the foundation for all this stuff they were bringing into the schools.
3: They in the school of- in the
0: elementary schools they had children in circles where the teacher would have them in circles and in the circle they they were told to talk about what happens at home and what do mommy and daddy do and what do they say and don't say anything to mommy and daddy about what we're talking about here and they'd bring little dolls into the circle and they'd show it to the children and you know I want you to play with these dolls as though you're at home and show us what mommy and daddy are doing at home. I mean, it's really creepy stuff. That's what was going on there.
1: Can I ask you a question about that? So this is, this is often a debate that I get into. So if you're, if you're in the bioethics space, tangentially related to that is environmental justice, environmental ethics. And there's been a concept creep and, what social justice meant uh, several years ago isn't quite what it means, or it's at least crept its way to include vastly more things than than what we originally meant by that. When I when I have conversations with them, they will say, "Well, it's it's more ethical to go with this particular philosophy. It's it's far more ethical to go with this indigenous scholar." That may be the case. I don't know because I'm not adjudicating that. But to your point about the the ethics component, one of the best, most incisive comments that, that Lewis makes is that in order to do that, it's it's as if you already have a kind of meta ethic, a metaphysic a meta-ethic framework by which you say, in order for you to say this one is better. You already mm-hmm. have an ethic. You're not standing yeah. in a vacuum out here with no ethic, although that may be what you say. Like, my ethic is a no ethic. My ethic is tolerate everything. Where did you get that ethic from? Where did you get the ethic to tolerate everything? That's an ethic. If there's no narrative, then we then that's the meta-narrative. There can be no meta-narrative except for this meta-narrative, which says there are no meta-narratives. It's, it's, it gets very incoherent very fast if you start probing and saying, well, where come you by this ethic that says this one is better? You already have adopted inherently a kind of hierarchy and you're placing at the top something that you've selected. But that's why he said this is more akin to an appetite into ethics if you do it this way
3: so where i would go with that though is i'd probably circle back to kind of what nate said because i'm a i don't know i'm probably a little different than the uh well than a lot of people i'm, I'm a special person <laughs> but uh <laughs> but i would uh, look, i think <laughs> there, there is a way so to me all these conversations are about unity and and multiplicity, unity and diversity. How do you have unity, which implies more than one? There has to be a unity of something. It can't be a monolith. It can't be a completely colonizing, identical replication monolith, because then there is no difference. So it's not anti difference. Diversity is a good thing. It really is. Monocrop agriculture sucks. It's killed diversity and it's ruined ecosystems. So like. Diversity is very important because if there is not diversity, there can't even be discernment. There isn't a choice. It's one. So diversity is good. But a colonizing diversity that's really anti-diversity is not really diversity. <laughs> so like there, there is a kind of diversity that I think you guys are talking about, which is which is kind of this no claim claim. It's, it's what I call in my own vernacular. It's like the mofo pomos. There is no meta narrative. This is the meta narrative, and I'm, then I'm gonna colonize you with that, and that's my trump card. Well, that's uh for my French, that's bullshit postmodernism, I think. <laughs> so like it's bad postmodernism. It it's really late stage modernity, is what I've heard heard it called. Mm-hmm. And so like I wanna I wanna avoid the either or of, of their right. No, I'm right. No, they're making power pl- claims. No, I'm making power claims. No, they're, you know, that whole back and forth thing, I think, is a mess. Because I think what's true is we need diversity. But then you need tolerance in a way that allows the other to be the other. It, it, it's very much like the, uh, the St. Anne School that, that Nate is talking about. Right, where you actually see diversity versus the
2: other side. And NICE is composed entirely of academics who are trying to climb There's up. No diversity. Uh, climb up higher the, the academic hierarchy and get into in and to, and to rise up through succession of inner circles so that yes. they can they can be you know you know you know the most special boys and girls or whatever like so there's really of a singular type there's not a lot of diversity uh amongst the uh you know the the villainous side because,
0: because there's the all side you, of you, diversity. what you guys have pointed out here and I think is really critical to this is the way that the language has been co-opted, because we're told that the most important things are diversity, inclusion, and equity. And absolutely nobody would argue with that. But what they mean when they say diversity, inclusion, and equity is something very different than diversion, inclusion, and equity. And we're supposed to swallow the um, definition that, that has been attached to those words that is not what those words mean, and that is the way almost everything works today. If we, it's a kind of double, that, C, yes, yeah. If we accept their language and use their language in the in the argument, we've already lost the game because if it's I say yes, diversity at, is, that- is a great thing. Okay, it's so over then.
2: Let's let's let let's like can we like establish like where we think. And I'm not saying that's that you're wrong. Can we can we try to establish like where we see the link in the thinking between like the diversity, equity, and inclusion types that we have in our day and age and with what nice is trying to do? Like where where's the overlap at? Because there's because Nice is like they're actually the agenda they're pushing is is slightly different. I mean, this was written mid-20th century, so you know it's a different set of ideas um but it is still based on the idea that what they're doing is improving humanity right that they're that they're uh well at least ostensibly they're they're pretending as if what they're doing is is you know for the advancement of, of human race of the human race and and progress um so like where do you see the actual like overlap there well, I'm. I'm look, I don't
0: know. I don't know which version you guys have of the book. Um, I'm on page 42 in that hideous strength. Mm-hmm. And in the center, in the center of that page, it says, "Man has <clears throat> now." Mark is having a discussion with some of the the guys. He wants to be on the in crowd with. He wants to be in the in crowd. So, mm-hmm. so he's very eager. This to is hear that
2: him. character's primary motivation, by the yeah, way. Yeah. To be on the in group. Yeah. It's-
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, this is the whole problem with politics. It isn't really two parties battling it out. It's two groups of people who each want to be in with the in crowd. And when they're out, they don't have nearly as many uh, privileges as they have when they're in. So when when they're in power, they have a lot of privileges. When they're out of power, they don't. And that's what we have for a two party system. It's not really what you think it is. But anyway, man has got to take charge of man. That means, remember, that some men have got to take charge of the rest. This is clearly what he's talking about in the abolition of man, too. Same exact words, almost. And then Mark says, well, what sort of thing do you have in mind? And this guy says, a real education makes the patient... Now, the the person receiving the education is a patient, right? A real education makes the patient what it wants infallibly, whatever he or his parents try to do about it. This was key in the educational system in Iowa. The parents had no say in what was going on. But we'll get on to biochemical conditioning in the end and direct manipulation of the brain. Mark says, but this is stupendous, Feverstone. This is like great, (laughs) right? He wants wants to be on the end and feverstone says it's the real thing at last a new type of man and it's people like you who've got to begin to make him and i think that's what's happening today is they're saying we need a new type of man we need a type of man who's completely tolerant who is accepting and inclusive and and you know who has no boundaries and who can who can enter into any environment and accept anything That, that, I think that's the story.
2: Right. But so, but it's it's a, in the, in the novel, though, like, like so nice, their symbol is like a, like a muscular, uh, bare chested man holding a thunderbolt. So it's a clear, like, it's a clear Ubermensch sort of image. It's like, they're more obviously about the will to power. I would say that what we're facing, this is, I would say this is something that's maybe different from the novel, is that I would say ultimately, what's going on in our moment is also an expression of the will to power, but it is wearing a different mask. Mm. It's presenting itself in a different way. And so that's actually like a difference. But so we need, so how can, so the question I'm asking essentially is like, I'm not disagreeing with you that what's going on is actually another manifestation. It's an attempt to manifest the Superman. It's an attempt to manifest the will to power, but how can we show that that's actually what's going on so that people understand that that's what's going on because that's definitely where's a different public mask.
3: It's anybody that wants to tell to take charge of men. Someone needs to take charge of men. It's anyone who wants to tell you what to do and what to think. Systemically.
1: I well, think that, that going back would, to go going back to Robespierre um and the notion of virtue terrorism. You know, if you look at the French Revolution and it's slogan you wouldn't think that that the guillotine and mass murder would be derivable from something that sounds not only benign but something nice <laughs> which is why i think yeah. that he used that yeah. um it, it it is a sort of um a kind of virtue terrorism and I'm not sure exactly because in in different times, different epics, you, you do have like a sort of animating spirit. And if I hear you, you're you're kind of asking like what how do we diagnose this? Well more Lewis precisely? does show
2: a little bit of the dynamic in the novel because like like mainly through like Mark's articles that he's writing, right? Yeah. So that like it shows you like the propaganda, like public facing right. nice sort of whether but it, also in the novel you have the you have access to like the private inner workings of the actual group so you know what they're actually about so the question is is like if we want to if we want to link some of the power movers in our world today to having these same kinds of nefarious motives like how can we how can we demonstrate that so that people don't people stop believing the propaganda and the face that's presented to them and see what's beneath their ass?
3: But here's here's something else though. Even in nice, even in the novel, I these guys, they are are not nefarious. Because go all the way up. Yes, there's a public front, but they're do, but they're the benevolent dictator. They're doing this for their good, because they're too dumb. You know, they need the dumb the dumb public we need to do this stuff for them and so we dumb it down we put out the propaganda but then we know what's going on but then as the novel progresses and toward the end no they don't know what's going on like even the guy at the top like he who is interacting with the macrobes the the egregore the demon the thing that is really pulling the strings and using them as puppets like he thinks he knows what's going on but he doesn't at the end when he really sees everything for what it is and and, and the veil is lifted, even though he was right there. It's just like, how could you not see it? But then how could you not see it? It's back again to the to the deception, to the room. Everything's a little off. Just bend your conscience a little here. You know, you think this, but somebody else is telling you to think this. And so then you, you acquiesce just a little bit here. It, this, is, this is why thought policing is such a dangerous thing, even from well-intended people. Because here's the thing. Stop looking for nefarious intent. Like, mm-hmm. people aren't psychopaths. Like, what percentage of the population are psychopaths or sociopaths? Almost none. So the road to hell is is paved with good intentions. There aren't really nefarious people. They they are or are not. They're deceived people.
0: Have you ever been to one of these, what they call a mystery spot? No. There's a couple of them in California. And um, my daughter and I happened upon one when we were driving through way up north in northern California through the forest one time. There was a sign saying mystery spot you have to come and see and so we went to this thing. You're talking about the place where like the laws of
2: physics are Yes. Is... Okay, yes. Okay. And I've and when you way.
0: experience it you totally feel like um there's some weird thing happening with gravity so you feel yeah. like you're you can stand straight up but you're actually at this angle. And and you you totally have this sense and then when you when you, after you go through the tour and you go in the room and they they start telling you yeah this this uh, spot was discovered in 1943 and all these scientists came out and you know there's some weird thing going on with the gravity in this spot on Earth and they tell you this whole nine yards and then you start thinking about it this sounds a little too good to be true like somebody just discovered this spot where the laws of physics are suspended and you go back out and you look at it again and you can see. There's something about the way the thing is built, the room that you go into to experience this is just a little off. (laughs) Everything about it is just a little off. And then you realize that you've completely been tricked. Mm. Even when they make the water look like it's running uphill, it completely looks that way. You're completely snookered into it. But it would be so easy to believe the conspiracy, what they're trying to tell you, like yeah wow this is a magic spot no somebody built that so they could make money but this is exactly what what he talks about in the abolition of man is how easy it is to debunk everything first of all that's an example of a good debunking right but the educationists are trying to make you debunk everything so that nothing has any meaning anymore that that our, the beauties, the glories of the past, are now all bad, and we have to go back and you know tear down all the statues and rewrite the past. and And the only hope for future is for us to put ourselves into the hands of the conditioners, so that we can become better people. And it's all snark. I mean, the, the best example to me is that uh, Monty Python thing where these the king is is out in the field and he goes up to some of the peasants to talk to them. Have you ever seen it? And then the peasants like, who do you think you are? And by the time you're at the end of the skit, you're laughing with everybody else. Yeah. Why should a King be more important than anybody else? You know, it it just, it just tears down every single value of glory and dignity and purpose and, and hierarchy and, sure our whole world is snark now I, I get your i get your
2: frustration but there's a reason why i focused on the what should we do about it question at the beginning because i think lewis actually is <laughs> yes. has an important point to make about that yes because, <laughs> because what the the pendragon of it's actually if the person who who's always wanting to do something and to like aggressively fight against the enemy is the materialist guy like that's the guy who's yeah. all like are we gonna ever do something darn it I, this is something I also think you see reflected in TLC is like the materialist types that are like, that are the most invested in the, in the culture war stuff. And it's like, I want to fight back and punch now. And it's like, they, 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 they don't have the patience to just like sit back and like cultivate a garden and build friendships with animals and to build a community that creates the conditions for bringing the people that are supposed to be there into it. And then being able to, I and I also think the whole thing with Merlin, Merlin, I think here is operating as a symbol for the the consciousness of final participation. Because, okay. Mer, Mer, because Merlin arrives in this moment, I notice how like Mer, the reason Merlin is able to do what he is able able to do is because Merlin is still connected. To the consciousness of original participation but here he's brought into so the merlin consciousness coming back into our moment is like i think it's acting as a symbol for like hey the consciousness of final participation that's how we actually defeat the enemy and mm. we don't defeat the enemy by engaging him with him directly using his methods the way that the materialist guy wants to do we do it by growing gardens and and, and cultivating community and building relationships and bringing the people that are supposed to be together together and waiting for the sign.
3: Well, Merlin kind of rips some shit up though. Yeah, he does. Yes, Absolutely. but he's used as
1: the, as the tool for the moment in the sense yeah. that, that he's directed at something. There's a, there's a Telos there and, He's literally
2: just a, he's like a pathway. He's not, it's not even him. He's like, he's, he's allowing, he's, he's allowing the, the gods or the angels. However, I mean, they're both, they're both right. They're both gods and angels. He's allowing them to operate through him because, well, because he's connected to that consciousness of original participation. He's, he's able to do that. But I don't think, I don't think what, what he's pointing toward in having Merlin there is like, he's using this as like, it's still, it's operating as a, as a symbol, as an allegory, as a metaphor for what we actually need to do. It's like, we don't literally need to, we don't literally need to wait on Merlin. We need to become Merlin. The person who has both the everything that it was gained from modernity and is in connection with the consciousness of original participation.
1: This is why I wanted to have the conversation, Karen, with someone who doesn't share my perspective. That's why I I kind of wanted to listen to this unfold. Because when I I wrote to Nate, I said, you know, it's so peculiar to me coming from a Protestant tradition that one of C.S. Lewis's last Ph.D. students was one-on-one with me at Oxford. He never mentioned Merlin, not once. Now we we went over Cornelius Agrippa. We went over some of the other hermetics aspects that that maybe Nate can can sort of expound expound upon. And when I was writing the paper, even in the very large compendiums, companion readers, critical editions, on the Protestant side. Almost you you can't really find like why Merlin, right? I mean it's such a weird and it's a thing. big deal. It's, it's a huge theme. It's, it's like the most right. It's he yeah, saves. It's the, what the, the whole plot hangs around. Right. It is weird. I mean, and and yeah. we should just sort of lay that out there as a weird aspect because Lewis intentionally he says, okay, when so speaking of the Bible, for instance, he says, listen, the reason why we why scientists and mathematicians make progress. Is because they don't throw the hard problems out. They keep working on them. And he said, with the Bible, for instance, if there's a passage or something that that makes us uncomfortable or we don't like it, we throw it out. That's how we make progress in, in religion. He said, but we should actually focus more on those and see why it is that they bother us or make us uncomfortable because that's where we would make progress. It would show us something about ourselves. And so the fact that he... I mean being a medieval scholar, renaissance expert, he didn't just select this out of nowhere. I mean this is this is deeply rooted in his lectures and the discarded image, the world that that he sort of inhabited. But what I was telling Nate is I think it's so weird that I couldn't do more with my paper as it relates to Merlin who who is the hero of to, the, to the reinforce part what of... i'm
2: saying about it being i mean there's all kinds of like little hints toward barfield in this book yeah yeah and, and but i think merlin is the biggest one because notice that both sides are wanting merlin right yeah so it's like the the, the consciousness of final participation has both great potential either direction right so it's So what the what the what Nice is hoping is to take this like sort of like sorcerous approach of like modern science that is a manifestation of the will to power, and they're hoping that Merlin is like a true sorcerer who also is of that same spirit of this reflecting this will to power. But it turns out that Merlin's not that at all, but that his his connection to the broader the broader reality is absolutely required for winning in the end like it's without 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 merlin's capacity to be able to allow the 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 the, the uh the good spirits to have their power manifest through him then the bad guys wouldn't be defeated so it's that very capacity that allows for the victory to be achieved.
0: It also seems to me that there's something important about the people at Nice and what their expectation was of what they would get. Mm-hmm. Because they they didn't recognize, I mean, they, they were willing to accept this hobo. <laughs> and think yeah, yeah, oh this yeah. got to be merlin this is what yeah, they're yeah, expecting. Yeah. they had a picture yeah. in mind right yeah, yeah, and yeah. so they were kind of co-opted and in many ways um disempowered by their erroneous uh, expectations mm-hmm. and um uh, but but i did find that one of the passages in the book i'm just going to read this mrs dimble is talking she's from saint anne's and she's talking about merlin um Mrs. Dimble said, Cecil, do you feel quite comfortable about the director using a man like this? I mean, doesn't it look a little bit like fighting Bellberry with its own weapons? And Cecil says, yeah, I had thought of that. Merlin is the reverse of Bellberry. He's at the opposite extreme. He is the last vestige of an old order in which Mm. matter and spirit were, from our modern point of view, confused. For him, every operation on nature is a kind of personal contact, like coaxing a child or stroking one's horse. After him came the modern man, to whom nature is something dead, a machine to be worked, and taken to bits if it won't work the way he pleases. Yeah, that's straight Barfield. That yeah, entire and, passage. and that's but that's <laughs> also the way. That's also the way we are seen today as matter upon which to be worked. I mean, that, that is what the system or what the educational system, what the, um, what the conditioners are looking at us as human beings, as people to be remediated. Yeah, well, not only that, did you guys guys ever hear, did you guys ever hear the, um, the lecture or read the lecture that um, C.S. Lewis did on the difference between punishment being deserved and uh, crime being an illness that needs to be remediated.
3: Not that I remember. It's a really it an, excellent yeah, lecture
0: it an... and uh, it, it comes up.
1: Is this on right and wrong and what it what it means, what it reveals about the universe?
0: Well, it, it comes up in the book, too. I mean, I ran across it in, in Abolition of Man, so I'll just read you this a little bit. Um, Fairy Hardcastle is saying, <clears throat> we'll smash them. You've got to get the ordinary man into the state in which he says sadism automatically when he hears the word punishment. And then one would have carte blanche So Mark doesn't quite understand what she's getting at. And then there's a kind of a a little backward that says for dessert was always finite by dessert. It means what, what you deserve. That's always finite. You could do so much to the criminal and no more, you know, how much punishment do you deserve? You deserve 20 years in jail. That's finite. It has an end to it, Mm. or you deserve death. Even that's finite. It has an end to it, but remedial treatment, on the other hand, need have no fixed limit. It can go on and on until it has affected a cure, and those who are carrying it out are the ones who decide when that is, and that gives Hardcastle carte blanche to do anything she wants to people if she is remediating an illness, and that's what we're being told today, that Anything that's wrong with us, even if we're involved in criminal activity, it's because we're ill and we need to be remediated. You know, and that that's what a lot of uh, prison work is all about today. But I do agree with you, Nate. I'm I'm getting far. No, through, no, no, through no. Because we should be focused on how to grow the garden and how to build the community. <laughs> Yeah,
2: I just like I'm I'm because I do that's what I mean I kind of I thought I I thought Lewis actually was providing some of the answers that I was seeking and I just but I I wanted to uh, yeah, but I still wanted to talk about it because you know there may be something I'm missing. But to me that seems to be he doesn't he seems to be suggesting suggesting a uh a strategy that is um well, it's an it's an active it's an active passivity, right? And it does and I think the passage you just read illustrates the point I was trying to make about it. It is definitely connected to this idea of, um, of uh, of uh, uh, of moving toward the consciousness of final participation. Like that's why he's that's why that's in the book.
1: Like that's can when, you can you what Merlin's doing there? Can you describe that more for people that have never heard this concept? Because I, I I'm telling you, as as a Protestant, I never had a pastor or teacher my whole life stand up and say, this week we're going to talk about <laughs> original participation and final participation. And so I do think that there's, there's, uh, there's definitely something that, that I'm lacking that I, I need. And, and to your point about how do we, how do we sort of weave our way through this? It, it, it I think in part, is through dialogues like this, where I bump up against something that, that I have no idea about and, and, and learn from it. And all the way back to, to Luke's point about there being a kind of, an other that, that, and a diversity that we, we don't want to squelch. Right. That's what the other two novels suggest to me is the, the kind of he presents an other
2: think about how it ends right with this like where you have like the presence of like venus in her prop- proper healthy ordered mode like exerting her influence over all of the animals and the people at the end right that were like so This like let's go every it, all of a sudden it's like everyone wants to be fruitful and multiply to be i mean to be like that's what's going on at the end of the book right it's this positive influence of it's this positive influence of venus that has to do this is directly connected to this idea of final participation because the withdrawal of participation is something that had to happen because we needed to learn something from it but at some point we Barfield is very clear about it. At one point in saving the appearances, he just simply he simply says another word for original participation is paganism, and and Lewis also said that he thought it would be necessary for people to be pagan again before they could be properly Christian too. And so it has to do with this connection to the, and what it has to do with is this connection to the natural world. And notice that Nice, they view organic life in the natural world as actually death right? For them, the only thing that's alive is is the intellect and the mind mm. and the, and what is created by a human technique. So the actual like living, organic, created world is completely dead. Well, whatever was wrong with the pagan worldview, the world was very much alive. So what Lewis is saying is that as Christians... In order for us to get to the place where Christ is leading us, we need to, once again, begin to engage with the world as if it were a living being. And not a dead object for us to exploit and do with whatever we
3: please. So, Kyle, to your point, though, about, um, because you brought this up a few times, about... Being a Protestant, never being told original participation, final participation. I think part of that, from my experience, because I mean, I'm whatever, I'm still 98% Protestant. <laughs> I'm I'm working on, working on getting some of that worked out. It's never going to get fully worked out, though. But um, I think part of it is because you, we don't have a, the Western, pro, largely Protestant consciousness doesn't have, I don't think we view the world as a spiral. I mean, to me, it really is the spiral where you have these returning patterns where you because because there is a circularity to life and to history and to civilizations and to my own life and you'll return to the same point, but you'll be viewing it from a different vantage Mm -hmm. and and I and it's a non it's not this linear binary thing where it's just like which leads to like a really simple kind of restorationism where like we need to go back to when it was good or we need to go forward when it's better it's not a binary because because you realize it's a spiral like every everything in there is fine but but there is but there is kind of this mystic telos that's at the end that we're always circling and never quite getting to but there is so like you're never going to get you are never gonna get a quantitative fullness where you reach that center. It's never gonna happen because you're forever going to be circling it, but there is a harmony with that circle and that's following the spiral, which is, Tomberg would talk about it with death and resurrection. And so- Uh-oh. I think that was a car accident outside my house. Uh-oh. I probably, I probably should check that out. Uh, not that I could do anything, but, um, so like original participation and final participation it's like Merlin. It's going to come back, but it's going to be different. That's what I would.
2: Well, I mean, it's important to understand that that like Christ is, and Lewis writes about this kind of thing in other places too. So, it's Lewis is very clear about the fact that it's like it's Christ that enables. It's Christ's victory that enables this, right? So it allows everything else that's within the cosmo the cosmic hierarchy, to be properly ordered under Him. So there's a scene in uh, the Narnia books. Where like Susan and Lucy are participating with a in a bacchanal with a figure that is obviously the god Pan, and they comment about how like they don't feel that this would be safe if Aslan weren't there with them, right? But with Aslan there, all of a sudden, it's okay to be a part of this bacchanal with Pan, and this so and he's doing he's doing the same thing here because the true the the the, the true the true Venus. He met on Paralandra after the evil after the evil angels have been have been defeated. Her influence is able to come back at the end of the book here in that hideous strength. And now that the proper order has been restored, and you can see the positive aspect of that influence that we call Venus. Well,
0: I'm going to throw something in here that may seem tangential but i think it fits um my husband and i were driving home from church on sunday and listening to another little teaching about the snake in the garden which was just an excellent little snippet from john ortberg by the way um and we get to talking about how while we're in this world situated here what is it that motivates us and I mean, obviously, one of the first things that motivates you is you've got to have a job so that you can earn enough money so that you have food on the table so you don't starve to death. There's this huge motivation to at least work to get enough food. And and then beyond that, the motivation becomes, well, I want to do an excellent job at my work. And, and then sometimes that means that you move up and you get more money and then you have more things. And that all becomes part of this motivational hierarchy that we're involved in. And then there are other motivations like, you know, you get strokes at work and it's really encouraging to be around people that appreciate what you're doing. And, and there's something great about doing something well. And those are all motivations that we have while we're on earth. And then we have all these bad motivations mixed up in there. We have all kinds of motivations, but in heaven, there's not going to be, um, I mean, the way it's described, nobody's going to be starving to death (laughs) and um, and nobody's going to be in tears and and everything's going to be tickety boo one way or another. And what is the motivation then? Because because we are going to be tasked with a role in heaven, we're going to be serving one another, we're going to be tasked with some sort of a role each person. What is going to be the motivation there? And so we were talking about that, like the the only motivation then has to become just being so in love with Jesus that everything makes sense. Everything falls into place. I mean, I remember when I first fell in love with my husband, the feeling of just driving along, I'm on my way to work and I'm thinking about him and how I, you know, the whole world is. The birds are singing and the sky is blue and everything is glorious. And I, I just want to do whatever I can, not only for him, but for everybody I know to make the world as beautiful as what I see. And I kind of feel that's going to be the same motivation that we have in heaven. And that's kind of what Venus produces there at the end mm-hmm. of the book, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even Jane gets all caught up in this and and she begins to feel a love for her husband for the first time. And and mark gets caught up in it he begins to recognize his own yeah it's a vision of restored
2: hierarchy is what it is because it's like so the so so venus which is a higher being is restored to her 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 proper place and the animals are restored to their proper relationship with us and so it gives you like this little mini paradisal sort of image It's not. I mean, it's not. But it's like it's not. He's not saying it's like he's not saying this is this is paradise. But he's giving you like this is this moment in time is like a little taste of paradise for these people that are involved in this story, because everything has been properly put in the correct order under the you know within the within the right cosmology.
1: So so it beckons back to Babel as well, right? I mean, the whole the whole predicate being. The, that hideous strength is a line from a poem about Babel and yes. and about how and that's the power... actually
2: the, the 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 kind of like the power that is channeled through Merlin that causes like the downfall is right is is, is, is the curse of
1: Babel right they can't even speak the same language right. they start you know they're just saying everything they say is just nonsense
2: yeah
1: um if
0: that's a horrifying scene isn't it
1: it is, yes, yeah. It yeah, yeah, yes, and it to is. to Nate, I think what would what would really, I I mean maybe because I operate maybe in different circles. I think to me the most compelling character in the whole book for me is Reverend Strake,
2: mm. because
1: these are this is when when you say like you know what's the what's the response, I think. I don't know a proper term. I mean, so technically it would be like a Christian transhumanist. If mm-hmm. if you listen to his line, uh, a couple of his lines where he says, if theology is talk, eyewash, a smokescreen, a game for rich men. Um, he says, if they think that th- theology is a sort of cotton wool, which will keep them safe in the great and terrible day, they'll find their mistake. For Mark, My Words, this thing is going to happen. The kingdom is going to arrive in this world, in this country. The powers of science are an instrument, an irresistible instrument, as all of us in the nice know. And why are they irresistible instruments? They are irresistible instruments because they are an instrument in his hand, an instrument of judgment as well as healing. That is what I couldn't get out of any of the churches. I couldn't get them to see. They are blinded, blinded by their filthy rags of humanism, their culture and humanitarianism and liberalism, as well as by their sins or what they think their sins, they are really not, though they really are the least sinful thing about them. This is why I have come to stand alone, a poor, weak, unworthy man, but the only prophet left. I knew that he was coming in power, and therefore when we see power, we see the sign of his coming. And that is why I find myself joining with the communists and materialists and anyone else who is really ready to expedite the coming. The feeblest of these people here has the tragic sense of life, the ruthlessness, the total commitment and readiness to sacrifice all merely human values which i could not find amid all the nauseating cart of the organized religions and just finally he he goes he finishes by saying for it's all true you know it is the saints who are going to inherit the earth here in england perhaps within the next 12 months the saints and no one else Know you not that we shall judge angels? Then suddenly, lowering his voice, Strake added, The real resurrection is even now taking place, the real life everlasting. Here in this world, you will see it. To me, dealing as I do in this in this realm of religion, technology, and medicine, and where they all sort of butt up against one another. This this is absolutely the argument that's being made, as I said, by technologists themselves is mm-hmm. hey, um, what did Jesus say? He said, Heal the blind. Guess what? We we have Neuralink, it's it's coming. Get, you know, uh heal the lame. We're you know on what's, it.
2: What's interesting to me about Strake's views is that there's such a weird amalgamation of like the worst elements of progressive thinking and the worst elements of conservative thinking like brought together into just this hellish amalgamation. It's like, Oh, I took absolutely the worst possible aspects of both and put them into one,
1: you know, he's so massive, Awful. That's why he's so compelling as I, I honestly think the notion that, and again, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll have really remarkable experiences where a student will come and 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 I've had these conversations. They'll ask if they can speak with me. Sure, um, meet me in office hours. And and they would say, I kind of don't know what to do with my life anymore. And I'd say, well, Can you can you kind of unpack that for me? What what is it that you mean? And they say, Well, you know. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm going through this struggle with my with my faith, and it it's almost always whenever we talk about these um, dialogic theories of communication, where they they actually start to open up and and mm-hmm. engage in dialectic, and so they'll they'll say things like, you know, I. And this is sort of an an anecdote, an amalgam of the kinds of conversations I've had. Well, when I go to church, this is an exact quote, though. When I go to church on Sunday, my pastor will tell me, don't listen to what your professor says. Listen to what the Bible says. If they're teaching you about evolution and all, just don't listen to them. Write down what they want you to say for the test so you can get the grade and get out. But don't pay attention to them and and they will say but then i'm in my class and they're teaching me the stuff about the the sort of real world and I, and it it sort of discredits my pastor in a way and so i've my my faith i just don't have it anymore and i don't even know how to believe yet i don't want to be anchorless floating out in the world with with no morals and I think this is where Strake really, really comes in as he says, don't worry about that because all of these things that your pastor was telling you, just understand they're there. Like he he was on to something. He was on to myth. But now so he's Strake is the person who reverses Lewis's argument. Strake is the one who says, ah, that was myth. But science and technology is true myth. It's right now, right here. This is the same kind of argument he makes about, about well, Christianity.
2: Don't you think that Jordan Peterson is a little strake like in some ways?
0: Oof. No. I don't know. I think completely, I completely the opposite. Really? <laughs> yes, I do i do because he does seem to be because like strake he seems to want christianity <laughs>
2: for like cultural reasons like Strake does right but he doesn't he doesn't want to accept the idea that there's anything supernatural which seems I think, to be precisely i, I think
0: i think you've, like, you've stepped over a line when you say that nate i think that's a completely unfair reading of I was a
1: question.
0: Him. It's a question. It's a question. Yeah. Was a, I, I, I mean, I. I think I he's closer it.
1: to he's he's closer to Kurzweil than than he would be Peterson, because part of what animates Kurzweil, as he as he will explicitly say. And for any of your audience who don't know who I'm talking about, Raymond Kurzweil is formerly the chief engineer at Google. Um, His latest book. um how to create a mind or how to build a mind. I think it's how to create a mind. He presages all the large language model stuff that's happening right now. It, um, his, his work in algorithmic systems is is sort of unparalleled, but the thing that made him so fringe is like all the the, the Silicon Valley types who who need to to raise money, the VCS out there were allergic to his sort of predictions. The thing is, when he started making the predictions, they did sound foolish. And one of the reasons he explains that is, well, that's because people didn't take into consideration exponential growth. And when he his, started his making prediction,
0: being this idea that there's going to be a, there's going to be a singularity when AI overtakes humanity and and it has the potential to destroy humanity.
1: Well, it, I mean, his
0: well, yeah, so in that, terms that's of, I guess, definitely
1: I... one. But like he he makes very like concrete. So we can chart logarithmically the growth of certain kinds of technologies. And here's where it will be at X date. And even though it doesn't look like that, say, for instance, the, the human genome project, it was anticipated to take about a hundred years. And he looked at it counterintuitively. He said, yeah, that's about right. They completed it in about a 10th of that time, mm-hmm. when in the first year, only like one 10,000th of it was completed. He's like, but y'all failed to in- integrate into your model that there were going to be newer types of technologies that would create a feedback loop that would expedite it exponentially so that they ended up finishing it well before you know the 100-year mark. And he said, so basically you experienced 100 years of progress during that time. Mm-hmm. Sh- Kurzweil is, is the guy who's saying, my father died and I want to bring him back.
2: But there's more to Strake than just the res. I know the resurrection bit, yeah, that's... No, but, but that's his daughter died. And the transhumanism
1: is... That's what bothered Strake so much. That's right. what deranged him was the death of his daughter. And right. so I think that, that 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 desire to see it now, to see it not now. to wait until the afterlife, he wants his daughter back now. He doesn't Which want to is wait.
2: a nice contrast with what I was talking about earlier when we have the, the, the attitude... Actually, that's generally what you could say about the attitude of all of Nice, right? Mm-hmm. Is it's categorized by impatience, by wanting immortality, power, whatever it is now, immediately.
3: It's will, right? It reminds me of that McGilchrist conversation with what's his name? I don't know his name, right. but it's but, it's the imposition of will. But, I know, I know what the world needs. It's to it's the yeah. intervention of my will to bring about the eschaton. That was the undercurrent for yeah, I mean, all bad guys.
2: And I, I don't think Peterson, I I let me be clear. When I was making the comparison to Peterson, it is not like that, not that aspect of strength, but the <clears throat> wanting to hang on to the vestiges of Christianity as a cultural artifact. Because see, that's what makes him different from everybody else in Nice, right? Is that he still wants to he still wants to hang on, on to something that connects him to Christianity as a cultural artifact. There's no other way to put it but he doesn't want the thing itself. Mm. Mm. That's the comparison I was making.
0: Well, I'd like to go back to the the bit that you read from Strake. uh, Kyle sounds so much like uh, Whitaker Chambers when he talked about why he became a communist. He became a communist for those very same reasons that you were reading from Strake there. And Strake said, you know, I'll put in with the communists or anybody who can make this thing happen, right? And that was exactly where Whitaker Chambers was. He could see that that the world is a very dark place. filled I mean, the same argument that Jordan Peterson makes. The world is a dark place. It's filled with sadness. It's filled with strife and trouble. And um, you only have two choices, either to go down the road of complete nihilism or to you know, to be involved somehow in making a change. The communist type says the only way to make a better world is to let this world disintegrate and to to make it happen faster because we want it to happen now. And so we're going to make this world disintegrate as fast as possible so that we can pick up the pieces and make the new world in our image because we've decided what the world should look like. That's the basic communist argument. And Chambers bought into that and gave his entire life and um, put himself at risk for many, many years to do that. Lived in the underground and, um, you know, passed off American state secrets and all that kind of stuff. But then one day, you know. (laughs) There's there's a lot
2: of echoes of like Russian cosmism and what's going on in in this book too with like Nice's worldview. right right. i think strake in particular reflects that
1: if you think so the 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 riddell lectures i think it was uh so he's he's doing the lectures that that would become the abolition of man circa early 40s um he's finishing this book by say 43 and it's out by the the next the next year and in America in a, in a copy of 45. So he's definitely drawing on his experiences from, from world war one and world war Mm two. And, and I think you can see some of the, the, the destruction of the woods and and things like that. Very, very similar to a kind of Tolkien approach to, to nature and how this, this mechanized process uh, it's, it's dehumanizing it's mechanized. It's alienating. Um, but uh, Nate, can you can you say because like my my ears perked up when when you mentioned this word, immunitizing the eschaton because that's actually Karen. One of the things that that made me want to talk about this is, you know, with with the the, the two pronged approach right now like these two bizarre things that are happening in real time where you have for lack of a better term you have self-made non-human intelligence so so ai and large language models and then you have the the kind of non-human intelligence uap phenomenon all kind of coalescing at the same time and 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 you notice, like, what what is this urge to, like, why put any of your thoughts or or desires or it's ruminations? It's a question of how. It's well, I was going to say, of- why why feed in, like, why would you interject your thoughts, feelings, whatever, into social media? How do we have these interactions to mm. begin with? What would make a person want to do that? And if you look back through the history of of technology, whenever you have these major shifts, it's just sort of intuitively the the case that when people feel insecure about their surroundings and their footing, they do sort of a, a Descartes move where where they they look inward and they say, well, I at least I can at least I think I know that that I am that I exist and I have these thoughts. So I may not be sure about everything else going on in the world, but. I can, I have this impulse to share what I think and feel because I don't know what else to do right now. It seems sort of out of control. And so, what about that immunitizing? Because I see that rhetoric. I'm telling you guys, if you, if you, that's the number one, that's the reason why I wrote the paper. And no one took me seriously. I was like the anti-Strake. I was saying, listen, these guys are building this stuff right now. This is 2015, 2014, and I could not get a Christian to take me seriously. I would interview Christians, leading professors, leading theologians that you would know by name, and they would say, well, let's... It's not really that big of a deal if if AI takes over the world, because guess what? Heat death of the universe. We're all going to die. The universe come come to an end anyway. So they're just kicking the can further down the road. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, like, we have to address this. Wow. yeah But it seems bizarre now. But 10 years ago, that's what I'm saying. Lewis was so ahead of his time to have written this in 1945 and to see that. From is theology poetry where he kind of he starts to hit, really hit home on this notion of evolution in the way that it's talked about by his materialist cohort at the time, where he says okay, there's like this whole poetic aspect.' you're, you're telling evolution as a story, as a narrative. And here in in that hideous strength, he sort of says, and now the final move is that you've got a narrative going where you say over 13.8 billion years, it was all leading to intelligence. Mm -hmm. And humans can now use intelligence Mm -hmm. to remake ourselves into what we want. We can ascend and make ourselves like the most high. And the fact that they want to isolate and amplify intelligence what in the world are we doing now but that very thing and the fact that we have very little assurance that we will be able to
2: like it's intelligence in this very limited sense too right like this is i think this is where mcgilchrist's work is so important too because when we say intelligence what we really mean is that sort of like hyper dominant left brain mode that has become Really part and parcel of our culture. Like this is Barfield, to me, this you, connects actually Barfield's idea of withdrawal participation. Like a hyper left-wing culture is the culture of withdrawal participation. Where you have like where you have balance between the hemispheres, you actually have higher levels of participation. So those are concept, those to me, those things tie directly together. And here's the question: I think like so the eschaton has to be immunitized because the, the eschaton is the marriage of heaven and earth, right? Okay, so, I, I so do, for people
0: I, for people like me who don't know what you mean, could you say what? I'm about ready. Eschaton? I'm about
2: ready to. I'm about ready to give you two images. So here's the question. So it's like you have that verse about like seizing the kingdom of God by force, right? So that's mm-hmm. the wrong kind of immunitizing of the eschaton. That's what Nice is doing. Like they're trying to do it. They're trying to make it happen now, on their terms. But what the Pendragon is doing with the kingdom of Logris. Is also an attempt to immunitize the ASCI-Khan, which is what the image that we get at the end of the book is like. It's a little taste. Like you can see, like, oh, this is what paradise is supposed to look like. This is what the marriage of heaven and earth looks like. This is what things look like when everything is properly ordered within the, the cosmic hierarchy.
0: Well, so when you say imminentizing, you mean I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Yes, because every bring, time I hear it, I always bring it, it about i m m a n e n t
1: like bring it about, make it make it now. physically real, real now, now. Make okay it
0: okay. that makes way more sense because I thought you were using i m m a n e n t
2: okay. I'm actually i i i use i I use the I used it in both senses and and did a con- and did a contrast. so yeah mm-hmm. the the the, the immunitized with an e. Has, that's the only way the eschaton comes about. It's marriage, heaven, and earth. That's what it is. So that's necessary. But the thing is, is like how it happens. Like, do, God, do are we godless men who want to seize the kingdom of God by force? I.e. make it happen right now, try to force it on our own terms? Or... Do we have? Do we engage in an active, passive mode? Do we uh, do we do allow to ourselves to engage with the creation as if we're a living a a living being again, and and allow it to happen through that active passivity that allows for the marriage of heaven and earth to happen? Because, like, I mean, the primary example of the mode that we're supposed to be in is Mary, her fiat. That's the, that active passivity is the passivity? mode of the that that's the mode that allows for, for. Oh, you're ahead.
0: not you're not saying the act of passivity. You're saying act active
2: passivity. Pas- okay,
0: that makes more sense too. Okay.
2: Okay. Yes. No. Not the act of. Yeah. Active passivity.
0: Yeah.
1: So what what do you do then? What. I, I guess for me i I wonder I think of how to say this go for it um i I was my oldest daughter we taken her to see her cousins and go to vacation Bible school with them and this is what you know one of the great joys of of protestant living during the summer you know hit up those vacation bible schools circuit and uh after my nephew came home one night he said well we're all cyborgs anyway now this is a little kid and i was like <laughs> i i was just sort of listening he was talking with his brother and they were you know scampering around and he said we all have phones in our hands we're just cyborgs anyway," and. I just sort of sat back for a minute because I, I'm, you know, yeah. I, I, I made a a very similar argument that, um, some of this, some of this thought is a strand that comes to us via via Lewis from Francis Bacon, where he sort of has a a a dual approach to to the fall and your your notion of immunitizing and immunitizing i'm going to play off that for a second because what what francis bacon said is we need to set up not an not imperialism with an i he said an empire with an e an epistemic empire because the belief that he held and many other people held at the time was that Adam and Eve had the encyclopedic knowledge of God. They had, that's how he could call every animal by its proper name. And I'm not to say, this is my belief. This is what's, what he stated. And so the, the way to, to regain what was lost in the fall was First, there's a redemption that that's vertical. This comes from God to you, you to God. But then there's the part that man is responsible for, which is the regaining that lost knowledge and to search the world far and wide, trying to regain what was lost in the fall in terms of our epistemic loss. And so I think that that it makes sense to me in in our current context where you have human beings who are walking around with this sort of encyclopedic knowledge just like uh, right here at your at your fingertips and i'm not sure what that what that does to us in terms of immunitizing in in the way that straight talks about because you in in the faith world, we make often make falsifiable claims. Now we're operating outside the realm of science. I'm not I'm not suggesting otherwise, but I'm talking about in in, in the realm that I operate in, a person of faith will say to to someone working on AI, you'll never do XYZ. This is something only people can do. And sure enough, we'll do it. And they'll say, Well, it can't write a poem. It will write, you know, a poem, and I'm not saying it's not derivative, but we all inherit a language. We don't recreate it each generation. I mean, we we manipulate it and and play with it and reconfigure it, but there has to be a base level which you can understand, or you couldn't understand anything at all. You couldn't uh, iterate on it if it was completely incoherent to you. So. You could say it'll never, and I mean, these are pronouncements by experts in the field saying AI will never beat a Go player of expert caliber for another 10 years. And it goes from not being able to beat anyone, to beating good players, to beating the best players, to only beating the best players, to... They take that version that beat the best players and they extract from the top and they build a new model from that that never loses to anything ever. And so your your sort of degrees of freedom in, in a world that's dominated by this kind of thinking where it isn't hard to see that the claims that we've made for many, many years that are being overturned in real time, I, th- I think that this is the part that's so hard for people to wrap their heads around what's coming in, in, in terms of novelty, pure novelty, that almost all the things you think of that are true, if you live long enough, will likely be overturned in one way or another. Whether it's uh it's an addendum to a fact you knew. And so I don't think we're quite ready to live in that yeah. World. If your
2: knowledge is relegated to knowledge of facts, and you think that the deepest way of knowing is tied to episteme, then you are in for
1: a world of hurt. <laughs>
2: Let me so, just say, say more. <laughs> say
1: more about that. Somebody, <laughs> somebody, tell me why, <laughs> why. Tell tell me why, because I want, I want people out there to hear. Because, so see, I guess the the problem That's... I've had is sort of activating the mm-hmm. the the religious Christian immune system mm-hmm. to even come online to to sort of proffer a response at all. Like, even if it's active passivity, is better than ignorant bliss i suppose i mean just the the unwillingness to even engage with the idea that right now sermons are being held by ai you know well maybe
2: maybe the problem is thinking that it is our intelligence is that is what makes us human right because that's definitely what the idol of that is what the idol of of the people that are pushing for artificial intelligence is that's what they think makes us that's what they think defines human beings right and that's why that's what they're trying to model
3: and, so and if, th- from their point of view intelligence cuz it's quantitative intel- and
2: and it's and also it's related re- re- directly to directly to power but what if the true image of both god and man and what no- what true knowledge really is are both revealed in jesus christ as love what if that's what knowing is what if that's what being human is that you can't like there's not ai can't replicate that
1: see that's where i would be careful using words like can't because that what what someone would say to you is like okay let's let's create a prediction market what do you want to put because see what lewis does in the the novels that that precede in this to be,
2: in order to be, no because in order to believe that you would have to believe that love is mechanistic
1: i don't see how that necessarily follows because if you look at okay look at look at paralandra for a moment and we're not going to go into the book We're we're sticking it to this but i just mean the idea that there are intelligences not like our own mm-hmm. that in it because this is a point Lewis makes there in Perilandra is she doesn't fall, therefore she right. doesn't know anything about the redemption. she doesn't know about the right. sacrificial lamb, none of that. So I don't think that it necessarily follows that that it would have to in any way be like how how we are if it has intelligence, it has a telos, it's crafted off of everything that we are. So I don't know how it it's purely machine at that point, in the same way that Alcazon is not purely machine in in that hideous strength. Now it's this sort of gross amalgamation, but but Lewis didn't have at his disposal the notion of of like uploading but you have like to understand
2: that. like the okay so the 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 like okay the idea that we can even do these things at all is based on the assumption of a of a mechanistic axiom and it is exactly that it's an axiom like as the foundation of being able to do it at all if that mach- mechanistic axiom that we have assumed in order to be able to do this is simply not true then all the things that we're assuming about it are true. But as long as we're assuming that axiom, we can buy into the illusion that it's true.
0: I kind of see what what Kyle is trying to say though, is that these large language models are not mechanistic in the way that you're thinking of something being mechanistic. They're more like, um, they're more like, Something that can—it's that can a quantitative happen.
2: randomizer. How is that not mechanistic? <clears throat> okay, so, Just, so
0: can I can I can I finish the thought here? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. It's, it's more <laughs> like absorbing the spirit of all of humanity is what it's doing, because it has out there everything that's been written and and thought and sung and. Poems and books and all of that kind of stuff of all of us, which is all of our past thinking, is out there, and and it it has all of that as its base. So that's more like a a giant spirit than it is like a mechanism, isn't it? If, we're, a, if we're using egregore as a, I understand what you're saying. Luke, want, let me Luke, Luke, let Luke, Luke is talk. having a fit over here, and Luke has yeah. his mouth. I it. did not <laughs> expect
3: the conversation to go this direction. <laughs> I just want to add this, and then, I mean, it's basically all I've been thinking about and all I have to add, and if it, you know, and if, if it resonates, cool. If not, I probably don't have anything else to say. Um, human beings, my understanding of a human being is the image of God and is the icon of God, and what, I, what an icon is, is that they are a coincidence of opposites. They are both end. They are imminently transcendent this is the myth of ai if if you wanted to be able to manifest a spirit you it would require infinity i don't care what you're drawn from infinity doesn't exist
0: i don't i'm not i'm not talking spirit as in spiritual kind of spirit i'm talking spirit in in the sense of like this word that they're throwing around like a demon or an egg or an amalgam of amalgam of human ideas that yeah. that has a desire that wants to go somewhere.
2: So but yes, yes, but aggregores are not persons. And this is important. This is which is kind of the distinction that I was trying to draw. Is that so? Yeah, they are collective intelligences, yes, but they don't have. But they're not persons. But this is why this is why I got in that argument with Pajot over he he, la- he lumped Aphrodite slash Venus, Moloch, and Mammon into the same in his con- and it was in a conversation about AI that he had with Jordan Hall. He lumped them into a single category as if they were all the same kind of being. And I'm like, no, first, like Moloch, first Moloch is an, is Moloch is what we would call an egregore, which is exactly what we're talking about. I would say that, yes, this is what AI resembles most is an egregore because it is something that is created from uh human collective intelligence, but it doesn't have, it does, it, it has no personhood of its own. Right. You can't, I it's a demon sort of or a, a, a devil, stuff. on the other hand, it d- does. So Mammon is di- Mammon is distinct from Moloch because Mammon actually is like traditionally held to be a devil or a demon, and de- devils or demons are considered to have an, an hypostasis. So they have a they, they're, they're, there's a personal element to them that the egregore does not have. And what I'm saying is that AI can't be a person. If you under if you understand mm-hmm. what a person really is, it can be an intelligence. I'm not denying that mm-hmm. artificial intelligence as an intelligence is a possibility. Mm-hmm. Of course, it is. It can be an intelligence, but it can't be a person. And it's for like me, like, and I'm I'm with Lewis in like, no, no, no. Venus isn't even Venus is not a is is not a, a Venus when Venus's influence is uh, clouded by the influence of the devils and demons within our fallen world definitely can be a problem, but Venus what Venus represents per se is not a negative thing at all. That Venus actually represents a positive force when properly ordered what created in the could cosmic be? hierarchy.
3: What? What created could be a negative thing.
2: Well I mean it's like it's kind of like but this it's a very it's a very long I mean to be fair, like to Pajot, it's like it's a very long standing He's got a lot of Christian tradition on his side that just says pagan gods, demons. End of discussion. That is not where Lewis falls. Pretty clearly, uh, in this book, um, well, and enough. we can agree or disagree with Lewis, but Lewis does not fall within that view. Pretty clearly. So I guess,
1: I mean, the you said you didn't expect that conversation to go this way. I i wasn't sure what way it would go either yeah. but i think the fact that the book includes this entity yeah that is looks similar like it yeah it yeah, looks yeah, like similar an artificial and, intelligence it's the, yeah. the head you know yeah. i mean it's 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 absolutely it's such a brilliant metaphor for where we are right now where as you say you know when, when you get these things out of their proper proportions and their proper ratios, as someone like McLuhan would say, or when you overly rely on, on technicity or techne, as Elul would say, you, you are headed for trouble. But what, I guess, what the, the maybe part of the warning that Lewis offers is this kind of dignity of difference, that personhood can look different than human and that there are intelligences that that ransom encounters that have personhood we would grant that they have personhood but we wouldn't say it's a human and so that's the part of me that that absolutely worries about the the road that we're going down is that christians to my mind are like small children who have wandered into the forest and don't know where they are. Because we've had this
2: flattened cosmology and we're not ready for, Lewis is presenting us with a cosmology that is like way more than what the Christian imagination, like in the last 500 years or so has been, is prepared to deal with. Now, if you go further back in Christian history, it's, it's different.
3: What was that? Christians have had a very siloed education. So like that, this is where I would go all the way back. We were talking about politics. It's really the same thing, the will to power. I would say like conservative Christianity, progressive Christianity, secularism, the, any, anything in the culture where they're playing the same game. It's all the same thing. Christians have a very, this is my big critique of confessionalism is it, it silos you into traditions I've experienced this my whole life. You're reading the wrong books. You're reading books by guys that aren't approved, by accredited, the right guys, the biblical guys, the whatever. Throw whatever label you want on it. It's all marketing. You're reading the wrong books. Well, what happens when you when you read a very siloed, narrow range of books? You actually don't know how to think because you don't have anything to compare it to. There is no discernment. You mm. can't discern in a monad.
0: Yeah. And Christians are a bit well, okay. I, there's I a question. Yeah, jump a here, I want to jump a, in here for a second because yeah, just
2: really quick, can I just say one little thing? Okay. There's actually a Christian version of like Mark's little thing where he where he regrets having not read the books that he actually wanted to read, and the he just read the books that he thought he was supposed to read. There's actually a Christian version of that too. But get, now, then, go ahead Karen, make your point.
0: Well, so I became a Christian in 1980, and I read these books in 81. <clears throat> wow. And they were, they were going oh, around a really... and a lot of people were reading them. And um, in the Christian circles I was in, these dis- discussions were taking place and I never felt like there was a blind eye to what was happening. I mean, there were a lot of people working in the education arena, trying to stop, trying to put a halt to what was happening. The, the problem that baffled us was that it was all the federal money coming in because they had started this Department of Education. And when the federal money came in and started dividing the state up into areas, the federal money would get funneled into each area. And then that area would be responsible for curriculum. So the parents lost all control over their local schools. So even though there were a lot of people ready to fight the battle, they had nothing to do except pull their kids out of the public school and start homeschooling. Mm -hmm. or start private schools that was the only options but but the point i'm trying to make is that part of what hindered my education as a christian was that the libraries the public libraries do not carry christian books by and large so once a christian book is no longer in print it's not available now, I had the privilege as a young believer, I, I went to Japan as a missionary in 86. So I'd been a Christian six years at that point, and we got to stay in the home of some people who had been missionaries for like 40 years. So they had a massive library of Christian books that they had collected, and they were probably in their 70s. So all through their life, they had collected these books. So I had access to all sorts of Christian books that I could have never found in a Christian bookstore and that are certainly never in a library. So part of what hinders Christians, part of what keeps Christians in a silo is that we don't have access to the riches of what has been written and published over the decades and the centuries, unless, I mean, now with Amazon, it's a little easier. You can go back. Or until the internet
3: and these conversations and the rise of the autodidact. Yeah, exactly.
0: But, but 40 years ago that wasn't possible so of course people are stuck in a silo because you only have what's available at the local christian bookstore which is pretty poor poor pickings right i just
2: i I have to go pretty soon but i just want to come back again to something i said early on in the conversation is that notice like i can't help but notice again the 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 people that are fighting and resisting against what nice wants to do are not all Christians, right? It's mm-hmm. actually like a group of people yep. that is like ha- has diverse beliefs and diverse viewpoints.
0: It's like this little corner. looks a lot
2: like it looks a lot like this little corner. Honestly, in fact, you could probably like you could probably map some pretty close parallels onto different figures within this corner within that that little collection of folks. And so, give it a whirl, Um, I
0: also want to point to the last two pages of the abolition of man before he gets into the appendix, because here he, he offers what he thinks is an answer. So we don't have time to read it right now because, um, because you guys have all got to go. But, but for those of you who have a copy of the book, just take a look at the last two pages because he talked. And I think that what he's strangely enough, what he's offering as a solution, I see rising up in some in the scientific community because I even see Someone like Michael Levin, in in the approach that he's beginning to take of looking at form as coming somehow out of music, mm. these things are beginning to percolate up in these scientific environments. And so, I mean, I feel very music,
2: hopeful. huh? That, that's like really resonant with where. Well, you'll. I think that'll probably come up. uh I'm having a conversation in August with John Verbaiki and Jordan Daniel Wood on. Um, Catherine Pickstock's Aspects of Truth. And then I've also been following Ted Joya's substack about like how Western philosophy actually develops out of music and poetry. And so this is something I've been thinking about a lot. And actually notice, I would note too that at the end of this book, one of the things that happens is they start playing music, right? They play mm-hmm. and they play they play a simple round and there's a communal dance. So
0: see, there's hope. <laughs> so i don't know if you guys yeah. want to continue this i still i still i saved up time um for two days from I, now. Think, I
2: think maybe we could go another we could go another round at some point in the future if uh kale kale wants to talk about it and we we'll are see if we, maybe when paul catches up we can look at doing something with him too i definitely haven't exhausted what i have to say um we could also talk about other parts of the trilogy it's it's i think it's a really deep series honestly Mm -hmm. i think it's some of lewis's best stuff i think he makes explicit some of the stuff that's more subtle than the narnia books where you kind of see like kind of his cosmology coming out a little bit more clearly in the paralonga books i would
3: also promote so ted s did like a monologue on the space trilogy the other day on randos and it was excellent like it was really, yeah. Good. I
2: need to watch that and maybe I, I'm talking to Ted uh later this week, so I think a Friday morning we're going to talk. So, lot,
3: I mean, I loved it, it was good.
0: Ted is, is the the biology guy,
3: yeah, Ted.
0: <laughs> he's Isn't a lot it, of fun. He's a lot Ryan, of
3: Brian Gosling, Snut Double, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay, Isn't guys, thank you. This has this... been great. Thank you for putting this together, Kyle. yeah thank, Kyle. So good to meet you.
1: Hey, Amen. Awesome. And you you yeah. notice how this thing just this percolates. I mean, I i told Karen I've been waiting on anyone to take this seriously for years. And so I really appreciate you guys just sharing your thoughts because there's so that, that much. The guy down there out.
2: in that corner with the t-shirt too has also been like since I first met him. I think that was kind of like the first thing that like we kind of bonded over was that we both loved the space trilogy.
3: I mean, the, so the two of the first things I ever said to Paul was just like what how we could fix the meaning crisis is people should read the space trilogy and Owen Barfield's Saving Appearances. I guarantee I will challenge Grimm, Go through the credits. I was the first person to mention both of those, and I did it repeatedly. Oh, did Grimm challenge and that? Is. So
1: um, if Nate, if uh, because there there are certainly things that that we didn't get to that I know you you know more about, where, where this sort of feedback loop we're we're circling back towards where magic and and science sort of fuse it they mm. they've been separated alchemy is now i mean that's sort of llms large language models are kind of the reason i would argue it's a kind of alchemy is that it's pulling off the top layer mm. uh, like consciousness so language is an outflow of consciousness mm-hmm. for us necessarily so and so it's built on the outflow of consciousness. And so you're sort of seeing this consciousness feedback loop iterating and feeding back on itself and coming up with insights that that are they're there in the same way that that they they argue Darwin had his ideas of of evolution 10 years earlier in his his notebooks. He just didn't, it hadn't like sparked yet. So they're able to feed back over all of this propagated consciousness and come up with insights. And so I think it's fascinating to see kind of this return of alchemy because the the, the whole idea there is that let's spin some gold out of like, can we get the philosopher's stone? And I think you're gonna see that as this thing progresses, there'll be a lot of gold spun, but one should be very cautious about continuing to to go to that well over and over.
3: Um, well,
0: I, I mean I I might be crazy, but it seems to me that as believers one of the if if we interact with it, we should be having as much as possible loving conversations that s- s- go as deep as possible because what that would actually be doing would be training, training the algorithm in a certain direction that would be a more positive direction than training the algorithm. You know, some people get impatient or call it names. I, I mean, I know it's just an it, but but these things are important. Even if it doesn't make any difference to the algorithm at all, what it does is it trains us in the way that we maintain our <laughs> own um, heart and our own purity of intent and our own principles in communicating i mean i I think it's really dangerous to start treating this thing as though it's something that can be abused verbally or otherwise in the same way that it's dangerous like on twitter to be nasty to people or to be snarky all those things have an impact on us as human beings and
1: this is a part of this is this is absolutely one of Lewis's admonishments in the characters of Divine Weston and, and how they treated the other intelligences like right. they were the ones that were ignorant. Um, yeah. yeah. And Nate, just finally for me, a question that, like, it, it, again for another time, certainly because I'm it, I need to dig in on some of this stuff that that you talked about and and elucidated earlier. But would you say that it? So for me, I'm more familiar with the 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 Hebrew notion of hester Hesterpanim, is this close to like this kind of withdrawal of participation? Is this is this similar but just in the the Judaic concept? I well, mean just tell me where to where I need to 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 read more so that I can have uh, a, yeah, a better conversation. I would actually
2: say in my opinion the best introductory book, the best the best book to introduce yourself to Garfield's <laughs> thought is actually Poetic Diction. It's a little bit more accessible than saving the appearances. So that would be my recommendation would be read poetic diction.
3: Okay. My, my recommendation would be don't go through books. Talk to people who get it, who see it.
2: Yeah, actually, there's a great, actually, honestly, that's a good point. There's actually a really great like 40 minute uh, YouTube video where the poet Kathleen Rain like explains Barfield better than you, you will get for <laughs> reading Barfield.
3: I'll I'll, I'll, see, I'll try to find the video and send you a link, Kyle. I appreciate exactly. that. Yeah, I well, it. Yeah, well,
0: send me the link so I can put it in the description section. You got it. I would say, honestly,
3: Please. the way that I've come to understand Barfield better than reading the book is my little corner of the little corner and talking to them for probably 10,000 hours over the past four years, you know?
2: And engaging with other ways of knowing than yeah. propositional. Through, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Thanks, everybody. It's, it's been wonderful. great, guys. Yeah, it's great. Been
1: thanks later. so much, Luke. Bye-bye. Nice meeting you. Yep. Karen, thanks so much for hosting us. It's yeah, been thanks awesome. a lot,
0: Karen. Thank you all. Appreciate it. It's been great. All right. Bye-bye.